All right, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you all. Uh, my name is Wally. Uh, I'm teaching pastor for Walker Harbor and uh, thrilled to be with you this morning. Uh, thrilled to continue what we have been speaking on for uh, the last week we started a mini-series, but walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to get there. But what I would love to do uh, to kind of start this time together, I, I want to first start with uh, a prayer together. Uh, many of you know Marlene, our friend uh, Marlene Molwike. Uh She uh, has had a bit of an adventurous week this week and has been keeping me up to date via text up until uh, late last night before midnight, kind of last text, um, but she uh, had started with having a filling in her tooth fall out, and so she had to get that fixed, which seems pretty commonplace. That turned into a whole lot of chaos that led to infection and her face swelling, and then um, they gave her some antibiotic, was wrong antibiotic, and then that that did some other things, to which landed her in the ER yesterday. Um, and so she, in a number of things, but she had to have a root canal in there after swelling, to which I don't think she could numb it. And per her words, she's like, I had a root canal that was more painful than childbirth. Whoa. Uh, that seems like it's, um, uh, ouch. And she said, so anyways, now what she is asking that we would be praying for is the swelling to subside and to go down, and then she has air pockets. Because of the swelling, air pockets got into her face, facial muscles, and so they need the antibiotics to kind of kick in, and today they're really hoping that this, well, they need the swelling to go down and the air pockets uh, to be absorbed by her body then. So um, this is what she had in invited uh, us in to pray to, pray for, and so specifics. And so I want to just stop and kind of pray for uh, uh, Marlene, and, um, and then we'll, we'll go. So gracious God, we uh, bless you for the opportunity to gather as your body of the church, and here as your body of the church, we lift up Marlene um, this morning, and uh, specifically that your healing hand, your power, uh, be on her in uh, helping her face, her body, her mouth heal. Uh, that the swelling we got, God, we ask that specifically the swelling would go down, that these air pockets would be absorbed, and that she would move towards health. And so we pray for that now, collectively as a body. Um, we ask that your uh, healing would fall on her even now and in this day, uh, and that you would then hold her as you do, uh, that you are with the family, that they would sense you and, and experience your presence with them as well. Uh, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, and then what I would love to do, uh, something we're trying to build into who we are as a church, um, we... we want to take some time and just uh, say thank you in honor of people uh, for some simple things. Really, sometimes I would say in, in just who people are, and so we call it a toast. Uh, you've been maybe, say, around and we just kind of raise our glass and, and we toast people or we toast certain things. And so this morning, I would love to just offer a brief toast and then we'll jump into the text. But last week, um, 
after our gathering, uh, I was chatting with somebody here, and I peeked over, and I saw Nate Coutier. <laughs> Hi, Nate. Um, over here, and all of a sudden, apparently, some people carry around toolkits or, or whatever, and he just, you know, tools out, and what he was doing is one of our tables, or our blown table that we have, he was fixing it uh, because it was broken. And uh, he was over here fixing it, and I saw him out of the corner of my eye, and I thought, because we had taken it to the trunk or treat and somehow setting up, and then setting up that morning, Sunday morning, I noticed it was broken, and Dave and I, and I'm like, oh, this thing isn't working correctly. And in my mind, that's where it ended. <laughs> this thing is not working correctly. I am the least handy person, but to see Nate over here, Nate has been a part of this church from the very beginning in many ways, and that's how. He has been participating in helping set chairs up, set us up to gather as the church, and things like that where he's just like, and that's broken, and I will fix it, because that's what he does. And so it doesn't go unnoticed, Nate, so thank you for serving in those ways. That's incredible, uh, and it is uh, Nate and people like that, that behind the scenes, Nate doesn't bring attention to himself other than his height, which he can't avoid. Other than that, you're not going to see him uh, waving and saying, pay attention to me. Instead, it's just serving like that, and it's such a gift, so thank you um, for that. Uh, now, with that, um, we're going to step into our second week of our sub-series, our mini-series, uh, called Light at the End of the Tunnel. And the reason we're looking at this light at the end of the tunnel is because the passages, the scripture that we're in for this section of Matthew, uh, what gets, I would say, extracted out of that, pulled out of that, uh, put into that in some ways um, theologically or the church has done are kind of some dark elements. And so uh, we're looking and saying, is there light? And we trust there is light at the end of this tunnel. So we have a fun little video to kind of just frame it and then we will uh, move towards where we're going to be today. Uh, so last week, if you were with us, whether you were able to join us in person or, or catch the audio or video, uh, last week we talked about um, wars. We covered wars where we were in Matthew, rumors of wars, wars, uh, false messiahs, and the end of the age. So we, we talked a little bit about those small things. And then what we were not able to get at, though... Uh, there's one part we were unable to get at that, that was in the text, and there are a lot of wondering about it, is um, the verse that leads to images like this. So there's a verse that kind of pulls into this, and we, where do we get these images? Uh, next slide. Um, this one just 
kind of really gets me. Um, but this idea of, of King Jesus, and then this, this specific uh, painting was in the back of the church, in the sanctuary of the church I grew up in. There was a massive picture in the back of the sanctuary of, of this one here where you see um, white Jesus, glowing Jesus on the clouds, and then apparently crashing and, and, and um, disembodied evacuation is what it is, floating up to that. So what I want to do is we're going to go look at the scripture that these images are uh, pulling from or, or doing something to the text, maybe is how I would put it. So one of the two texts that does this, that they're pulling from, last week was in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, the second half, that says this, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So this verse was in many ways, they're pulling from that or extracting from that or infusing into that, I would say, this idea of Jesus coming on the clouds and it looked like that idea. But as, as is always the case, we want to do what? We want to start with context and let's see what context does to this text because this verse they will see the person speaking here about they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory is Jesus and he's not making this up he's quoting the book of Matthew, or sorry, the book of Daniel. He's quoting from the prophet Daniel about a vision and a dream that Daniel has. So let's look at Daniel's text. This is what is written as Daniel's describing the dream he had. And Daniel says, as I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Don't miss this second verse. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To the one who has always been. Daniel's vision has the human one moving upward toward the divine. Big deal. The Son of Man is ascending, or better understood as they would know it, resurrecting and ascending from earth to heaven on the clouds. Oh, you mean the opposite. Exactly. In Matthew, it is imagining his resurrection, the Son of Man, and ascension as vindication over pagan rulers, reversing the verdicts of the religious leaders and the pagan executioners, which is to say that the suffering that the Son of Man will endure was not in vain. This will reveal how he is indeed the son of man who has suffered at the hands of the beasts or monsters, as Daniel calls them, which Matthew includes the temple system and those who run it. So he's pulling from Daniel and saying, yes, he will rise with the clouds and go to the one who has always been. So rather than pictures of Jesus arriving from heaven riding on the clouds, the context of the text is painting a picture of resurrection and ascension. <laughs> oh, that's helpful. So are you with me? This is really helpful. So 
what they did is they just said, well, let's look at these words of Jesus, ignore that they came from Daniel, ignore that all context, and just take what we want to read and pull from that. Now, let's look at a, another biblical text that is often used to construct this belief that is known as the rapture. Um, so we're going to look at this, this idea of rapture where Jesus is riding on the clouds from heaven, scooping up believers, and leaving behind the miscreants to kind of burn with the earth. That's kind of the idea. So this text is understood as the Apostle Paul writing to the, his first letter to the church in Thessalonica or Thessaloniki. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, it says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the arch archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Circle that phrase. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now the trouble begins is when we take Paul's attempt in do, using a metaphor to describe this picture and we read it literally so our friend uh, Tom N.T. Wright, scholar, he helps us here by, by saying this. It's if, if we try and read this literally, the metaphor Paul's, or Paul is giving, it's, he said, say you were to describe the color red to a blind person. So say you were to describe the color red in one specific instance to one specific object as the color red is sharp and loud, for this object, and then the blind person thinks that all things red are physically sharp and audibly loud, which was not the point, what you were trying to make there, which leads us to ask, what was the point? What was Paul writing to the church? What was he trying to get across? In this passage, the key is to realize what resurrection itself means, because that's what Paul's getting at, is resurrection. It does not mean disembodied life in some mid-air heaven, as these very esoteric pictures, the paintings we saw, show. Paul is speaking about the re-embodiment of God's people to live with God in the renewed world, which is a very different picture. And that matches, by the way, the last letter in the Bible, John's Revelation. It concludes, that whole thing, Revelation concludes with the divine arriving here, not taking us there, wherever there is. It's the renewal of all things, providing a healed and restored heaven and earth, and I say heaven and earth, together. Because in the Bible, we don't have time to dig into it, all of this. We think of the opposite of heaven as hell. But in the Bible, if you were to even Google heaven and hell, you're not getting anything. Because there's nowhere that it speaks of heaven and hell together. It speaks of heaven and earth. And then, yes, there's hell, but that's like a separate thing. We'll talk more about that next week. But heaven and earth, and in the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, heaven and earth are one. And then what happens is sin disrupts and corrupts and pulls them apart, if you will. 
There's disruption between the harmony of heaven and earth, and the whole biblical movement is the divine putting the two back together. Are you with me? That's so important, so important. We're moving towards a healed, united heaven and earth. So the part about meeting up in the air, that, that language, it's really important. It's from the Greek word apontesis. Apontesis is the word, and it's found four times in the New Testament. It holds a very first century contextual meaning. When the Roman emperor would ride into town, into your city, the people were encouraged to apentesis, go out and meet their leader as a sign of honor and respect. Go out and meet them. And that's exactly the phrase Paul says here is, the believers, if you will, those who follow, will go and meet the divine as the divine is on the way. Go meet them. Uh, another time it's used is in the book of Acts, and it says Paul arrives in Rome, and, and those who have been uh, getting letters from Paul or know Paul, they go out and meet. They apontesis Paul. And then we're going to look at the other two times it's used in the New Testament are going to be found in our scripture we dig into today. So it's about meeting that person. That's all the language is doing. So then that we literalize it and go, yeah, and that'll be up in the air. Is, what? Um, now, the word which is often translated, in, like, and then we get clouds, here's really important, actually refers to the cloud that led the Israelites in the desert. So it's simply communicating. Here's how I would say it. Go out and meet the one who has always been your guide. Would you go out and meet the one who has been guiding you throughout history, eternity, however you want to see it? Does that help? I find that incredibly helpful. Um, and I'll just say it really good. Simply put, there is no rapture. That word never appears in the Bible. Uh, and these texts that we just pulled from where they get it have been misconstrued, and by the way, in the last 175 years, because a guy named John Nelson Darby put this theory together in the 1830s, and then he had his own Bible made, as you might have heard, and that was used heavily, and so the idea of the rapture kind of took off in the 19th century and then caught some humming in the 20th century because, you know what, that really works well for evangelism if we can tell people, we can scare people into this is going to be getting out of here, are you going to get out of here or not? And oh, by the way, when we get into the text... We get this idea of left behind. Are the ones left behind good or bad in the rapture th theory? Anyone know? Bad. Oh, interesting. We'll have to look at the text and find out if that lines up with Scripture. It's a good time. We're going to have lots of fun. Now, here's the thing. Most denominations across the board do not hold to the rapture theory, uh, including the Reformed Church in America. Does not. A couple of denominations do, uh, and I just find it like we just did short work of it here at the beginning. If we look at context, I feel like it does the work for us and really helps us see things in a deeper and wider way. So then, what's it all mean? Okay, so what, what do we do with it? Well, once again, we have to hold the, the, the text 
within the context, one, of Matthew as a whole. What we just read, we have to hold it within all of what Matthew has been doing. But as we know, even in the biblical narrative, the whole biblical narrative, we hold it in the context of the biblical narrative. We come to find what Matthew is doing in chapter 24 and chapter 25 is drawing heavily from the book of Daniel. So we need to look at that because it's borrowing and pulling from it that will really help this uh, put us together. So at this point, what we're going to do, and it's really important, is we have a mountain of scripture to read through together. And it is really important that we hear it aloud in community. We don't often enough read scripture aloud in community, which is how we are to hear it, to experience it. So I think it's really important that we read it. Now, unfortunately, our professional world-renowned story reader, uh, Ruth Jones, uh, sickness fell on the Jones household, and she was not able to be with us this morning and read, but... There is no small move to have, I get to then just reunite with a former drama partner from my early church days, if you will, and my amazing father-in-law. You like that intro? Um, so who has the microphone? Do we, Jordan? It's, okay, it's right here in the box. Jordan put it away. So if you would welcome uh, John Corpy. Um, Thanks, Dad. Uh, he is going to do a lot of reading this morning because otherwise you're like, that guy needs to stop. Um, so what we'll do is we'll do some reading, we'll do some commentary on this, and we'll see where we go. But we have a lot of ground to cover, a lot of text that we need. But if you will dial in and listen, and uh, we'll have all sorts of fun. We're going to begin where we left off last week, which is... Uh, chapter 24 of Matthew will begin in verse 36. Nobody knows what day or time this will happen, Jesus went on. The angels in heaven don't know it, nor does the Son. Only the Father knows. Pause. So all that was just said and like speaking of the end of the age and all of this stuff taking place, who knows when this will happen? The days and the time? Only the divine creator. That's it. Which I find really interesting. So many modern day doomsday prognosticators must have just like gone, I'm skipping that verse. We're not going to look at that because I know. Somehow they know. And oh, by the way, here we are and they've all been wrong. Like, when do we go, eh, I don't think so. Anyways, that's fun. Let's continue. You see, the royal appearing of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. What does that mean? Well, in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were getting married and giving children in marriage, right up to the day when Noah went into the ark. They didn't know about it until the flood came and swept them all away. That's what it will be like at the royal appearing of the Son of Man. Now, first, Jesus compares this mysterious kingship of the human one, the one like the Son of Man, the divine in flesh, if you will, to be, ready, like the days of Noah. Like. It's just, he's comparing 
when people were sharing in meals, getting married, giving their kids in marriage, uh, doing this, then what happened? A flood came and swept and washed away wickedness. That was that story. So who was left behind in that story? Who was left behind in the, in the flood story? Oh, interesting, the good people. So when it says it's like that, there's going to be a taking away, a sweeping away of wickedness and evil, and that which would be left behind are the righteous. In other words, things are going to feel really normal, people are going to be doing normal things, and then judgment will be proclaimed, and judgment we'll talk about next week as well. So um, that's helpful. What else? On that day, there will be two people working in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding corn in the mill. One will be taken, the other will be left. So now it gets a bit interesting because now we have some sort of science fiction movie. Uh, maybe it's a sequel to Liam Neeson's uh, Taken film. There's a couple of those. This is another one. I'm not sure what's going on here, but people are getting taken, uh, and it's kind of crazy. So... So keep alert. You don't know what day your master will come. But bear in mind, if the householder had known what time of night the burglar was going to come, he would have stayed awake and wouldn't have let his house get broken into. So you too must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at a time you don't expect. So now I start getting confused because now the Son of Man is coming like a burglar in the night who breaks into people's homes and steals them. Are we tracking? We're reading this, and now all of a sudden the Son of Man's compared to a burglar stealing people, and God's okay with this. Uh, I'm a bit confused, but we're supposed to be, here's the point, be alert, be ready, for what? I'm not sure if it's defending ourselves from the coming of a burglarizing, housebreaking into people taking Jesus, or, um, it's confusing, but I thought the left behind books and movies have the believers as the one being taken away to heaven. This is the opposite. Huh. So, and apparently, those who are taken away always leave their clothes behind. Why is that? Are, so, they're heading to a nudist colony. Is that heaven? Is heaven clothed or is heaven not clothed? And all of a sudden, we've got all sorts of things. And why are people to be alert? To defend from being taken or is it to make sure they have spare tunic? This is confusing. I would say it's why we're reading it out loud because hopefully you're hearing it and going, yeah, what's going on here? But there's more. So, Jesus went on. Who then is the trustworthy and sensible slave? The one the master will set over his household so that he will be given them, giving them their meals at the right time. Blessings on the servant whom the master, when he comes, finds doing just that. I'm telling you the truth. He'll promote him to be over all his belongings. But if the wicked slave says in his heart, my master's taking his time, and starts to beat the other slaves and to feast and drink with the drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day he doesn't expect and at a time he doesn't know. He will cut him in two and put him along with the other hypocrites where people will weep and grind their teeth. Um, everyone heard that, right? Now we have people getting cut in half. 
Then, continued Jesus, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten girls who each took their own torches and went out to meet the bridegroom. Pause. Real quick, went out to Apontaces, the bridegroom. Next mention of Apontaces, go meet the bridegroom. Okay. Five of them were silly and five were sensible. The silly ones took their torches but didn't take oil with them. The sensible ones took oil in flasks along with their torches. The bridegroom took his time coming, and they all nodded off and went to sleep. In the middle of the night, a shout went up, Here's the bridegroom. Come on and meet him. Then all the girls got up and trimmed the wicks of their torches. The silly ones said to the sensible ones, Give us some of your oil. Our torches are going out. But the sensible ones answered, No, if we do that, there won't be enough for all of us together. You'd better go to the dealers and buy some for yourself. I just find this so fascinating, right? Now we've launched into this parable about some silly girls and some sensible girls, and this whole thing seems to be going a bit bonkers. Well, can't wait, just let's keep going. So much fun. So off they went to buy oil. But while they were gone, the bridegroom arrived. The ones who were ready went in with him to the wedding party, and the door was shut. Later on, the girls came back. Master, master, they said, open the door for us. I'm telling you the truth, he said. I don't know you. So keep awake. You don't know the day or the hour. So keep awake, be alert. Some silly girls and some sensible girls, all with torches, but not all with oil. A bridegroom who shows up randomly, and the sensible girls go into a wedding celebration with the bridegroom. The silly girls run off to go shopping for oil, and they get locked out because the bridegroom says, I do not know you. All right, let's keep going. This is what it will be like, Jesus went on. It will be like a man who was going off on a journey. He summoned his slaves and handed over control of his property to them. He gave five talents to the first, two to the next, and one to the last, each according to his ability. Then he left. Straight away, the man who had been given the five talents went out and traded with them and made five more. Similarly, the one who had received two talents went out and made another two. But the one who received a single talent went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came back and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents came forward and gave him the other five talents. Master, he said, you gave me five talents. Look, I have made another five. Well done indeed, said his master. You're an excellent slave and loyal, too. You've been trustworthy with small things, and now I'm going to put you in charge of bigger ones. Come and join your master's celebration. Then the one who had the two talents came forward. Master, he said, you gave me two talents. Look, I've made another two. Well done indeed, said his master. You're an excellent slave and loyal, too. You've been trustworthy with small things, and now I'm going to put you in charge of bigger ones. Come and join your master's celebration. 
Then the one who had the one talent came forward. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man. You reap where you didn't sow, and you profit from things you've never invested in. So I was scared. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here it is. It's yours. You can have it back. You're a wicked and lazy slave, answered his master. So, you knew that I reap where I didn't sow and profit from investments I never made? Then you should have put my money with the bankers, and when I returned, I would have received back what I had with interest. So take the talent from him, he went on, and give it to the man who has ten talents. If someone already has something, you see, they will be given more, and they'll have plenty. But if someone has nothing, even what they have will be taken away from them. But as for this useless slave, throw him outside in the dark where people weep and grind their teeth. And some people say the Bible is weird. I want to start there because it's so important to hear the scriptures out loud because a rather wild section like that, thank you very much, thank you, thank you, needs to be heard in its entirety, in community, I would argue, and in context. Because we have naked people being taken, clothed people being left behind, a drunk glutton cut in half, five silly girls and five sensible girls, all with torches, but only some have oil. And oh, by the way, most translations let us know they're virgins. Just add that in there. And then a master who has slaves, two that increases money, and one who buries it in the ground. And the one who buries it in the ground gets tossed out into the dark with the hypocrites. Now, real quick, who does Jesus call hypocrites in the book of Matthew? Religious leaders. Oh. And there's weeping of gnashing of teeth or grinding of teeth. We'll get into that next week. So when people say the Bible is weird or confusing or seems oppressive or problematic... I think our initial answer should be, uh, yeah, yep, I understand what you're saying because, yes, the many genres and cultural ways of how and when this was written thousands of years ago are vastly different than ours today. Yes, of course, it probably seems weird and odd. We don't have to be defensive, just simply be honest. That can sound and probably does sound really odd to us. So, context, context, context. We should point out that we often miss the context, and then we read sections like this literally when they are to be read first through their genre, which this began with apocalyptic literature. That's how this section began, is first it was rooted in apocalyptic literature, which is Daniel, and all of that, it's apocalyptic literature, which is rich in imagery and metaphor and pictures, and the purpose of that is to spark the imagination and often ignite an urgency in how that audience would live their lives right where they are now. It's like the pictures and images and the visions that were given are, will you pay attention to right here and right now? Be alert. Be ready. You have a life right now. How are you living in it? Then we have 
parables, the last two stories that were told about the, the ten women, five sensible, five silly, and then these slaves and the master, they're parables, made up stories, again, to provoke the listener, to move the listener, to be alert, to pay attention to their life as they have it. Are you ready? Are you living the life you have right now, alert to the kingdom among you, within you, around you? Are you utilizing your gifts, your talents, what has been given to you to move into that kingdom, to operate in that kingdom, and to keep that kingdom humming along, the kingdom of heaven? That last parable of the, the guys uh, the, invest five more, invest two more, bury it, and, th and then what's he say? It's so important. He says, I knew you were, and then he describes the master as some fearful, angry, like, you do this thing, and I was afraid, he even says. And the master doesn't say, yeah. Instead, the master says, if that's how you think of me, if that's how you think of me, then I think you would have lived differently. But if that's how you think of me, I can, I can be that, but I'm not that. But you thought that of me, and it led you to squander what you had rather than to pay attention. There's a missing things here. They are then what we have here within the stories, the images, and then the parables are to provoke and move the audience to live a deeper stewardship mercy, truth, justice, grace, and forgiveness right here, right where we are. That's what we're called to do. It's all really important because far too many people have simply taken this literally. Then we get ministries that instill fear, and instill fear into people and paranoia thinking that will help. You better say this prayer, you better give money to what we say, or serve in the ways we say, or warn your neighbors that doom and gloom is coming, you might get left behind or burn in hell, and welcome to our good news. Like, it, it's all a bit jarring and confusing. So as I mentioned last week, being familiar with the book of Daniel is really helpful for what Jesus just walked through in chapters 24 and 25. Jesus is pulling heavily from the imagery and prophetic stories and dreams found in Daniel. Now, many modern-day churchgoers typically think of the book of Daniel knowing like, oh yeah, Daniel's three uh, buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that fiery furnace. I, I think I know that story. Or, and then there's the really prayerful Daniel who gets thrown into the, yeah, lion's den. We know those stories, great, but there is so much more to the book of Daniel, and I just want to do a brief overview that will help with these two chapters. The book of Daniel provides a series of dreams and stories that describe how God's eternal kingdom will triumph over the kingdoms of this world. Very similarly to what Jesus has been doing in Matthew, confronting the religious leaders and the political leaders and saying those things will fall. That's what he's done. So they're just knit together. And being that the book of Daniel was very fresh in the first century, it was still on the New York Times bestselling list, and people were really well known with it in the first century, it makes more sense. They'd be like, oh, I see what Jesus is doing here. I see what he's doing. He's pulling from that and he's mirroring it. In summary, Daniel chapter 2 is about the rock which smashes a great statue. That statue is built in different ways that represent five different kingdoms. 
chapters 3 and 6 are about how God delivers his faithful ones from suffering. The center of chapter 7 is about what he calls monsters that wage war on the humans and about how God vindicates the human figure or the one like a son of man is the language Daniel uses. And he destroys the monsters. Now, here's the thing. If you're a first century Jew, you recognize this is code for Israel being vindicated over the pagan nations that have been oppressing you. They're like, oh yeah, we know that. You're tracking. Chapter 9 speaks of something blasphemous, sacrilegious, some abominable object which will be placed in the temple itself. And chapter 12 predicts the eventual resurrection of God's people. A desolation that leads to abomination is the exact language Daniel uses and Jesus quotes. It's wild imagery, dreams, and stories point to a time when evil is going to reign and pagan invasion will take and try and place blasphemous objects in the temple itself. Similar to last week, history teaches us and shows us what has happened to some of these dreams and visions. In 40 CE, common era, 40 CE, less than a decade after Jesus has resurrected, the Roman emperor Caligula, another kind of nutso guy, right? Disturbed fella. He tried to place a huge statue of himself in the Jewish temple. In order to stick it to the Jewish people, I'm going to put a massive temple or a statue of myself in there, but he was assassinated before he could do it. But as we looked at last week, about 30 years later, in 70 CE, the Roman siege came, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple of this, and it was known as they understood this, this is the abomination that leads to desolation. Jesus pulls from all of this imagery and language and utilizes the background of Daniel to essentially say, here's the thing. There will be many kingdoms and empires that are simply concerned about their power, their glory, and winning and conquering all others. You choose to center your life on the person and way of Jesus, one like the Son of Man, which means to pay careful attention to how you live and who you live for right here, right now, to be good news to all people. Live each day in a way that radiates the Christ for all to see and experience. So this is not about being left behind. It's about being alert and present to the Christ who is with us. It's actually about being aware and being alert and being present to right here, right now, in all that you do. Are you with me? So I would say it like this. As an accountant, live the Christ in you as an accountant, as a teacher, as a counselor, as a mom, as a dad, as a grandma, as a grandpa. What you are doing, live radiating the Christ within you. Bring the kingdom in how you do those things. The basic, everyday, simple things that you're doing, you're alert to the Christ with you and in you and working through you. How you interact with that person at the grocery store. How you have a conversation with the teller at the bank. How you interact with that kid, that youth, 
when you're conversating with them. Radiate the Christ within you. Be alert. Don't miss this moment. Don't miss this conversation. Be fully present. God is with you. God is working through you in this. Extend belonging through the hospitality you offer to friends, neighbors, and either the stranger or foreigner among you. Display the Christ in how you steward and spend the money, gifts, talent, skills, and opportunities you have been given. As your heart is awakened each day, prayerfully prepare your heart for the Christ who awakened you. The Christ who walks with you and who can do infinitely more than our brains can fathom when we live goodness, kindness, and the godness exhaled throughout our day through us. In this, you won't be surprised. You'll be alert when the bridegroom comes, when the master returns. You won't be like, oh, oh. you'll be like, yes, of course. I've been having so much fun living with you and doing your will, working in the ways that you have been working, and you're here, and I see you, and I'll go out and meet you and honor you because I couldn't wait for this day. But by the way, in some ways I could wait because I've been having such a ball living out your goodness in all the simple, small, basic ways. Are you with me? but I'm not surprised, I'm ready, I'm alert. Yes, you're here, I love it, I'm thrilled. Let me say it another way. It's not about multiple locations as in heaven and hell and earth. It's about how the divine creator crafted heaven and earth, then humanity disrupted that harmony, corrupted that goodness, we call it sin, Yet the divine throughout the scriptures moves to dwell with us and be with us and have us partner with the divine to renew, renew, restore, and reconcile all things back together to the creator. And there are consequences in choosing to accept and participate with the divine or rejecting that and saying, no, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And that's what we'll talk about next week. Judgment, hell, Heaven, great, great, great. We can talk about all that, but it begins right here, right now. Are you with me? It's just bubbling with energy as Jesus was saying, be here now. Pay attention. I'm showing you the way. I'm walking you the way. I am that way, and I am with you to the end of the age. So follow me. Now, what I want to do is invite us into a practice. It's this ancient, monastic, beautiful Christ practice called Statio. S-T-A-T-I-O. Statio. And here's what it is. It's being where you are supposed to be before you need to go there. It is about being consciously committed to what you are here to do so that your mind isn't partially distracted by the thing you just left. This requires you to create enough space and time to get ready for one of these central Christ moments to concentrate on the presence of the divine with you, in you, and through you in this moment. So let me give you a practical thinking in this. It's arriving five minutes early. It's arriving five minutes early. 
What I mean is you have somewhere you, you're going to go. Whatever it is you're going to do, go to work, go to school, go to the grocery store, go somewhere, you have a meeting. I'm going to sit down with these people, that person. I'm going to meet with these people. Arrive five minutes early. Whether you sit in a car, you sit at your desk, you take some time, take a deep breath and say, I'm here and I have this before me. That which I came from and that which I left is there now. So to have my mind spinning on that and to have my mind in that and my heart in that will miss what is before me. So how much time do you need to go, that is there, I am here, and this is now? What do you need? What do you need to take those breaths, to take that prayer? And so, Holy Spirit, you are here, I am here, we have this moment, and I want to be fully present to this conversation, this reality. We do this to bring our whole selves rather than only half of ourselves because the other half is spinning in the past. We want to be fully present. I would say it like this. When we are aware that this present moment is holy, we are wholly present in this very moment. It reads like this. At least this is the way I wrote it down. As I'm meditating on this, you have that? thought I put it in there. There we go. When we are aware that this present moment is holy, we are wholly present in this very moment. And I'm like, I just, yep, yep, yep. I need this. I need this. I need this. I'm not the most intelligent fella, so I trick myself by sending my, setting my watch five minutes fast. And it works for me. You might, you might go, well, I know it's five minutes fast, so forget that. It works for me. I look down and I go, oh, got to go. And it works. And I set all my watches five minutes, six minutes fast because I want to arrive. I want to take a deep breath and I want to be able to go, okay, there was this and now, now is here. This person is before me. This meeting, this conversation, this is where I need to be. Benedict, uh, Benedictine sister Joan Chittister, I love her. She speaks of Stacio like this. There is more to the spiritual life than keeping a schedule of religious events. Merely attending such spiritual exercise is not enough. We must take our whole selves there, mind and heart, as well as our bodies, and we must be there five minutes before prayer starts. She spoke when she became a, a Benedictine sister. She, she said, and, uh, the novice said, that they have bells. They used to, you know, and they still do. Bells would go off, call for prayer. And she said, I was always there when the bell went off. I was on time. And my novice told me, you're five minutes late. And she's like, the bell went off and I'm here. And, she, and, he, and the novice said, she said, you five minutes early so that when prayer starts, so do you, all of you. So she learned as a young lady that it's to be five minutes early so that I'm on time for what is right here and right now. Are you with me? So that be a practice for you to take the time to be where you are, to be alert, to be present because the kingdom is among us, it's within us, it's around us and it's ready for us to participate. So let's be wholly present to this holy moment. Gracious God, I bless you for speaking into us today. You 
are here and you are with us, may we be fully here and with you. And may we take that reality into each moment, each opportunity, each invitation to see you and live you in all that we say and do, sing and pray and those we are with, that they may see you radiating in us and through us. May you continue to nudge our hearts and call us to be alert.